Hey, Feely Humans, known here. Uh, so if you couldn't tell, doing something a little different today, something I haven't done on the podcast before, which is feature another episode or feature part of an episode of another podcast. And I'm doing this because, uh, first of all, it felt aligned. And, and I, I want to share a little bit more about what that means to me. So um, as you all know, I've been doing this show, Yumi Empathy, for almost nine, uh, not nine years, almost five years at this point. And I love it, and it's meaningful, and it's beautiful, and I, I, I cherish it uh, so much. And it's gone through some changes and stuff. You know, I used to do it weekly, and now I do it bi-weekly or every other week. And um, I love it. And I, I do get a lot of emails from folks uh, wanting to wanting for me to promote their thing or, or vice versa. And in the past, it's never felt very aligned. It's never felt... Um, like, I, I just don't like, I'm, you know, me, I'm not the type of person who's just going to like be a shill for, you know, Coca-Cola or whatever. Right. Like I, 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 that's just not who I am. I want, I want it to be meaningful. I want it to be mutually beneficial and, and, and clear on that. And, and so when, um, when Morgan, uh, at Pushkin, uh, reached out to me, uh, about, you know, doing a swap of an episode or an ad of Yumi Empathy in their feed and uh, a little snippet of the upcoming season of The Happiness Lab, um, I was like, that's great. Um, I already knew about Pushkin because it's... uh, it's Malcolm Gladwell's podcast network. Um, I was already aware of the Happiness Lab as a podcast and have listened before and appreciated the podcast. And so I was like, this feels like a no-brainer and a full harder uh, heart as in my heart, not hard as an H-A-R-D. Um, and so I was like, yes, let's do that. That would be fun. So today, I hope you love this. Today, I'm, I am, I'm sharing uh, a preview from another podcast, and I think you'll love it. Uh, it's called The Happiness Lab. As I said, on The Happiness Lab, Yale professor Dr. Lori Santos shares evidence-based strategies to help you live a more joyful life. Each episode, Lori is joined by incredible guests like Grateful Dead drummer Mickey Hart, Star Trek's Will Wheaton, and viral Instagram illustrators Liz and Molly. Uh, you know, listeners, that I've had both Will Wheaton and Liz, well, not Molly, I've had Liz on the show and Will Wheaton. Not the Grateful Dead drummer yet, but, uh, you know, there's still time. Anyways, so Lori on the show uh, explores the science of the mind to discover the best way to flex your friendship muscles, unravel the mystery of why fear and pain can feel good, and examine the, quote, you only live once philosophy, and why it doesn't work like you think. Like this podcast, Yumi Empathy, the Happiness Lab, Happiness Lab takes a look at our range of human experiences and feelings, explores how to fully feel our feelings without shame or guilt, and provides actionable behavior changes we could all make to find more happiness in each and every day. In the preview you're about to hear, Lori is joined by U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Marti to talk about a massive public health crisis that has touched nearly all of us at some time or another something he has called the invisible epidemic, also known as loneliness. I mean, I felt lonely. It's very human. 
Um, especially for us feely humans who are highly sensitive, loneliness, um, I think, goes hand in hand sometimes, or at least it has for me. Loneliness is much more than an uncomfortable feeling. It can wreck our health. It can even be deadly. But often we're ashamed to admit we suffer from it, even though it's exceedingly common. So if we're feeling lonely, what can we do? As you'll hear in the preview uh, just ahead, we need to build out our social connections. I mean, I talk about this often on this podcast, right? Like we grow in connection with others. We need each other. We're not you know, individualist beacons of strength. We are collective strength. We are collective mush. Uh, But it's easier said than done, right? Uh, Luckily, the Happiness Lab has answers. To learn how to make friends as an adult and how to foster meaningful connections with the people around you, check out the full episode. You can find and, uh, and learn more from the Happiness Lab wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I uh, hope you enjoy this preview. Um, it's pretty great. So check it out. Have a listen. And uh, we'll see you uh, next time on uh, Yumi Empathy. And yeah, go check out Pushkin. Uh, they're, they're creating some good stuff over there. Um, anyways, I appreciate you feeling human. I cherish you. I see you. I hear you. And thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. It's Miami in the 1980s, inside a local elementary school. And one of the students, Vivek, is feeling out of place. He's new to the city, new to the country even, and he's experiencing something that many of us are at least a little familiar with. Vivek is feeling lonely. Experiencing loneliness had to very much to do with shyness. You know, I was actually not deeply introverted. I wanted to spend time with other people, but I was really shy and I had a hard time making friends. Young Vivek lived in the shadow of that loneliness. The schoolyard, his homeroom, and lunch tables may have been bustling, but no one seemed to stop to get to know the shy young boy in their midst. Going to school each day was stressful. I was always worried about cafeteria at lunchtime and sitting alone. I was worried about what would happen on the playground when people were choosing teams and was worried that I might be chosen last, even though I had good athletic ability, but I just didn't have a lot of close friendships with people. Vivek's feelings of sadness and isolation extended beyond the school day. He went home to a supportive family, but he held his loneliness closely. It was his secret, his biggest source of shame. It was something he wasn't willing to share with anyone. You know, I was embarrassed. I didn't want it to seem like I was somehow deficient in some way or unable to interact with people. Vivek's shame was compounded by a sense of guilt. His parents had moved several times in only a few short years, looking for the best place to raise a young family. Despite his age, Vivek could sense how difficult this was for his parents. He didn't want to burden them further by revealing his unhappiness. I didn't want them to think that somehow this was their fault. You know, my parents had just come to the United States. They were dealing with a lot of different stresses and trying to figure out how to make sure we were okay in school. And they were working really hard at that. And I just didn't want to make them feel like somehow they were falling short. And I don't think they were falling short. I think they were doing everything that a parent needs to do. If you've listened to previous episodes, you've probably heard that our minds are often unreliable, that we're prone to rationalizing or putting a positive spin on our tough memories by editing or forgetting them. But Vivek's early experiences of loneliness are still seared into his brain. They've even given him a new mission in his career. Today, Vivek, to give his full title, is Vice Admiral Vivek H. Murthy, MD, two-time Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek's tackled many public health priorities while in office, 
But one of the issues he wants us to take more seriously is loneliness. Loneliness seems to be a near universal experience. It's far more common than we think. And it's also much more consequential, both for our health as well as for how we show up in life, whether that's for our families, in the workplace, or in school. So that's what led me on the path of focusing on loneliness. We sometimes tell ourselves that loneliness affects only a sad minority of people. The widowed, the withdrawn, the weird. We think that a busy life in a bustling office, school, or workplace means that we can't be lonely. That having kids or a loving partner can satisfy all of our complex social needs. And we usually assume that friendships just happen without our having to put in the work needed to seek out opportunities for connecting. But as you'll hear, our minds tend to lie to us about how social connection really works. And the truth is, loneliness is much more pervasive than we think. In fact, if the statistics are right, it's even possible that you're feeling lonely right now. And if you are, what can you do about it? How can we fight our feelings of emotional isolation so that we can get all the happiness benefits that come from other people? Our minds are constantly telling us what to do to be happy. But what if our minds are wrong? What if our minds are lying to us, leading us away from what will really make us happy? The good news is that understanding the science of the mind can point us all back in the right direction. You're listening to The Happiness Lab with Dr. Laurie Santos. If I want to improve my physical health, there's plenty of reasonably specific science-backed information out there. For example, the U.S. Department of Health website lists the top 10 changes I should make to my diet. Things like limiting added sugar or eating more whole grains. The same goes for exercise. The CDC tells me I should do 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity every week. Like this elliptical machine that I'm on right now. But despite the impact that loneliness has on our health and well-being, we don't have daily targets for social connection in the way we do for nutrition and exercise. There's no checklist telling you to say hello to five people in your neighborhood or to spend 150 minutes per week having a real heart-to-heart with a person you trust. But these types of interactions are required for our health and happiness. And not getting a big enough dose could be taking a larger toll than you think. When Vivek Murthy first became Surgeon General, he assumed he'd carry on the work of his predecessors, concentrating on health problems like obesity, smoking, and the opioid crisis. But loneliness, that feeling he remembered so vividly from childhood, quickly became an important part of his agenda. And that's because feeling lonely can have a devastating effect on our health. It appears that loneliness is strongly associated with an increased risk of heart disease and dementia and depression and anxiety. People who struggle with loneliness also have fragmented sleep. So they may sleep for the same number of hours as somebody else, but that sleep is broken up and marked by something called micro-awakenings, where they don't fully wake up, but they nearly wake up. And that disturbed quality of sleep affects how restful your sleep is. It diminishes the quality of your sleep. There's also evidence that loneliness can be deadly, Take, for example, a famous paper by Brigham Young University psychologist Julianne Holt-Lundstad. She and her colleagues used a technique known as a meta-analysis, in which you mathematically pool the results of all the existing studies on a topic to create a sort of mega-study with tons of statistical power. Julianne used this method and pooled more than 100 studies on longevity and social connection. And her results were striking. 
people with strong social bonds were 50% less likely to die over a given period of time than those who had fewer social connections. And that scary finding may be even underestimating the true dangers of loneliness, since the studies she pulled together tended not to weed out things like bad marriages and toxic friendships from all those healthier social interactions. For a newly elected Surgeon General, such stark findings were hard to ignore. If you look at the degree of life shortening, if you will, it appeared similar to the mortality impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day and greater than the mortality impact of obesity or sedentary living. But there's another feature of loneliness that makes it as much of a public health threat as so many other big challenges. And that's its commonality. According to some surveys, nearly a fifth of people in the United States today admit to struggling with loneliness. Now, just to put this in context, 22% of adults in the United States is more than the percentage of adults who smoke cigarettes. It's more than percentage of adults who have diabetes. So this is exceedingly common. And if more than one in five adults are impacted by loneliness, that means that you likely know somebody who's struggling with loneliness. That very well may be you. It could be your spouse. It could be your friends. It could be your family. But we tend not to realize the people close to us are feeling lonely, often because they're taking active steps to hide it. Vivek found that people were surprisingly willing to talk openly about their struggles with things like obesity and addiction, but loneliness, not so much. There was a stigma around loneliness that was also universal, a sense that if you admitted you were lonely, that somehow you were not likable or that you were deficient in some way. And that kept a lot of people from admitting their struggles. But in closed conversations and in private moments, people of all backgrounds and age groups would share that they were struggling with loneliness. I'll be the first to admit that there are definitely times when I've felt lonely. I mean, I have a wonderfully supportive husband, and I work with a great team of stimulating students and colleagues. I get to interact with lots of great people throughout my day. But those same times when work keeps me really busy are also times when I have little opportunity to see my friends. And this pattern is something I have in common with Vivek, especially when he first started his new job. I think we can get caught up in that narrative and convince ourselves in almost a martyrish sort of way that we're doing something for a cause greater than ourselves and using that as justification for letting our relationships slide. And what I came to realize in retrospect is that the cost of that misprioritization was greater than I could have imagined. Vivek's new role meant that he was interacting with dozens of interesting people every single day, even President Obama. But quality time with the commander-in-chief can't make up for missed opportunities to connect with the people we care about most. I had become distanced from good friends that I had strong relationships for years. I had realized that even this time I was spending with my family was not nearly as high quality as it should have been. You know, as I was often distracted by emails and work and phone calls, even during family dinners and other family outings. The evidence suggests that just like a balanced diet or proper exercise routine, we also need a variety of social interactions to stay healthy and avoid loneliness. Some of those can be shallow and fleeting. Others need to be lasting and more intimate. Vivek has found there's no single quick fix. If we're lonely, we need to sometimes do more than just changing the number of people we interact with. Putting ourselves in the middle of a crowd or showing up at a party or going to mixers are not necessarily always the solution to loneliness. In his fantastic book, Together, the healing power of human connection in a sometimes lonely world. Vivek explains just how complicated loneliness can be. 
there are three types of loneliness. There's intimate loneliness, which is feeling that you lack a close confidant, somebody who you can deeply trust with just about everything, somebody who knows you deeply and who you know deeply. And when you lack that kind of relationship in your life, then people experience intimate loneliness. There's also something called relational loneliness. When we experience the absence of friendships, where we would get together with somebody or with a group of people on, on weekends or on evenings, we may go on vacations. We may call them up, you know, to go to a ball game or to watch a movie together. And finally, there's something called collective loneliness, which is what we experience when we don't have the benefit of identity with a, a common group. Now, identity may come from a shared interest or affiliation. We may find, for example, that we have a sense of community with the alumni of our college or the people that we go to work with. The truth is we all we need all three. 